you want to stay standing for the reading of God's holy and precious word, we're going to be reading verses 20 to 30. And as we read, let's listen with reverence and joy, because this is the word, the voice of our God. Let's hear him. Mark writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called to them and said, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would bless the the reading and preaching of your word this morning with the presence and power of your spirit. Uh, I, I, I renounce to you the pressure to preach great sermons. Instead, help me to preach a helpful sermon that serves your people, comforts your people, challenges your people, and conforms them more and more to the image of your son. Help them to, to listen, to hear, and to have soft hearts that receive the truth of your word with faith and love and hope. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, you've never read through one of the four Gospels, I'd encourage you to do so. Because you see, if if you've not read through a Gospel like Mark here or Matthew or Luke or John, you've never really considered, you've never truly considered the the real Jesus. You don't know enough about him to make an accurate assessment of him, to have an accurate view of him. You know, maybe you've picked up a few things here or there along the way that you've heard from Christians or that you've heard from skeptics or, or that you've heard from your family or whomever, but unless you have read a gospel, you've not come face to face with the real Jesus. You've never really considered him. And if you do, let me just tell you that you'll likely be shocked at what you find about him. He he is a decisive figure. He is a, a, a polarizing and pivotal figure. You've just absolutely got to do something with Jesus of Nazareth. And and you can't do this thing when you dismiss him by saying that he's merely a good teacher. And you can't really do that with Jesus because The things that he taught are either true or they're untrue. And if they're true, then he's far more than a good teacher. 
And if they're untrue, then he's deeply mistaken at best or a liar at worst, and thus he's not a good teacher. Now, C.S. Lewis, he, he makes this argument rather well in his book, Mere Christianity. Listen to what he said. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Of course, you know, we've, we've been working our way through Mark here. And we've, we've run into continually what we call the, the conflict passages. And in Mark chapter 3 here, we've come to a kind of head where a few groups have seemed to have made their mind up about Jesus. They've come to some conclusive judgments about him. And those judgments correspond to Lewis's categories here, if you've noticed. If you can see, Jesus' family seems to think they've concluded that he is a lunatic. He's out of his mind, they say. The scribes have concluded that that he's a liar, he's a devil from hell, or at least he's possessed by the devil. And the disciples have concluded that he is Lord. Of course, there's another category that that I think Lewis is is missing here that, that he doesn't mention. It's a category that is an option for us. We could also consider Jesus to be not just liar, lunatic, or Lord, but also legend, that either Jesus was, was not a real man and that these stories were fabricated out of thin air, or that maybe he was a real man who was a well-known teacher in Israel in the first century, but that after his death, stories that were passed on from household to household and individual to individual were more and more embellished and details were added here and there about healings and miracles and exorcisms and eventually what was once historical fact became myth, as if it was verbally passed on, that, that Jesus is legend. And that's an option. And yet, of course, if you actually do read the Gospels, as we have this morning, and you give the Jesus they present to us a fair shake, you start to see issues with that conclusion. Our text this morning, along with really the entirety of the Gospel of Mark and all of the Gospels, really, so obviously do not bear the marks of myth. They don't bear the marks of being legend. If, if you only think about it for just a moment, if the author of this gospel were writing down myths that were supposed to make Jesus compelling to us, do you really think he would include details like his family thought he was nuts? His family thought he was out of his mind. Or that the, the religious authorities in Israel, these were the authorized theologians of the day. They were the scribes, the religious experts. And they accused him, the religious experts, the real authorized theologians, accused him of being possessed by a devil. That information 
very well might undermine the, the claims of Jesus in these passages to some readers and hearers. And so why include it? Why include those details at all unless, that is, they accurately describe what actually happened? And so you see, it doesn't seem appropriate to dismiss Jesus as legend. What we see in this passage and others like it bears the marks of being historical record. And so if, if, if you can't simply dismiss Jesus as legend and you're forced to designate him somehow as either liar or lunatic or Lord of his being out of his mind or an evil teacher who's satanically driven or that, he's, he, that he is who he claimed to be. You're forced to make these kinds of conclusions about Jesus. And part of what our passage this morning gives to us is a fair warning in making our conclusive judgments about Jesus. And it's actually even more specific than that. It's warning us against becoming so hardened and so settled in our conclusive judgments and final judgments about Jesus, particularly when those conclusive judgments declare him to be evil or satanic in origin. That's what the scribes here were doing. And Jesus tells them that they're on very dangerous ground, so dangerous that they're either flirting with committing what is often called the unforgivable sin, or that they have indeed committed it and that there's no hope of redemption and forgiveness for them. Now, we want to hear and heed this warning this morning and and understand what Jesus is saying to us here. And so in order to do so, we're going to simply walk through our text and seek to explain and apply what Jesus is saying. And as we do so, we'll see Jesus accused in verse 22. Jesus answers in verses 23 to 27. And Jesus alerts in verses 28 through 30. Now, first, we see Jesus accused. Look at verse 22. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, now pause there for a moment. Of course, you know, we've seen this group called the scribes so far in Mark's gospel. Uh, Scribes were the experts in the law and the scriptures. They were, again, the authorized theologians of the day. Uh, They were those who studied the law, who transcribed it, who wrote commentary on it for the rest of Israel. And uh, perhaps the most well-known scribe in the Bible, as someone you know, is the the scribe Ezra. And he has a book in the Bible named after him. He's uh, the best-known scribe, I think, in the scriptures. He's there in the Old Testament, uh, and he's a good man. Um, And and, and so we see the scribes in the scriptures leading up to this point. And yet, the scribes here in Mark's gospel are not necessarily viewed as favorably as those like Ezra. And yet the group that we're introduced to here is actually not the exact same group of individuals called the scribes in what we've seen so far in Mark's gospel. So far, we've seen Mark having conflict with local scribes there in Capernaum. But notice that these scribes have come down from uh, Jerusalem. Uh, Perhaps the scribes from Capernaum had contacted them and asked them to send delegates down to bring out the big guns and make judgments about Jesus, so to speak. Or, or maybe just the scribes in Jerusalem had heard about Jesus since, uh, as we saw last week, he's beginning to receive ra- national recognition in Israel. Uh, however they caught wind of Jesus, they came to Capernaum to render judgment about Jesus. They came to witness his works, his teaching, his following, and then to make a judgment about him. And here, here's their judgment. They say, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So this is fascinating. 
notice that they, they don't deny that Jesus is doing these mighty works. That he's, he's healing the leprous, the paralyzed, the infirmed. He's delivering people from demonic oppression. These scribes see this, and they, it's so evident they can't even deny it. They're not claiming that he's pulling you know, some tricks out of his sleeve or, or doing some Benny Hinn crazy nonsense or anything like that. They're, they're saying this is the real deal. He's really doing this stuff. And these scribes see this, and they don't accuse him of being a charlatan or a con man. Instead, they accuse him of being satanic. They see his mighty works. It's undeniable, but how is he doing them? What's the source of his power to do these mighty works? And the scribes say, it's Satan. Of course, there's some peculiar language in that accusation. Beelzebul is a word that no one seems exactly clear on regarding its origin. However, it is clear what it means here, uh, because in the corresponding sentence, they refer to Beelzebul as the prince of demons, the ruler of demons. And as we know, the ruler of demons is, is Satan. The sort of chief fallen angel is the devil, Lucifer, Satan. They're saying here that Jesus is controlled and empowered by Satan. That's the accusation. And if I might for a moment just kind of move back and take a step back from a, with a, a, a sort of mountaintop view of the themes that we see here in Mark chapters 2, 3, and 4, part of what we need to, to, to deal with and recognize is that there will never be consensus on Jesus. There will never be consensus about Jesus on this side of his return. That's what the parable of the sower is all about. As we, we move from Mark chapters 2 and 3, about all of these conflict passages and all these different groups and their judgments about Jesus, we move into chapter 4 and see the parable of the sower. And Jesus is showing us there, there's not going to be conclusive judgment about me on this side of my return. And likewise, because of that, there will never be consensus about Jesus' people on this side of Jesus' return. And just this last week, I read heart-wrenching accounts about Christians and pastors in Afghanistan. One pastor said that one night he received a letter from the Taliban that said, we know who you are, where you live, and what you do. Not much later, they came to his door to arrest him, kill him, I, I don't know, but thankfully he had gone into hiding. I read another story about another believer whose 14-year-old daughter was torn, ripped from his arms and forced into sexual servitude of a Taliban leader. What They call it marriage, but we know what that means. All because these men and their families bear the name of Jesus. Of course, as Christians in the West, we, 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 we face next to nothing compared to what our Afghan brothers and sisters are facing. And yet, there still is a reality that we have to face and come to grips with that not everybody is going to like you. And sometimes the reason people will not like you is because you bear the name of Christ. And not just that you say you're a Christian, but that you actually think and speak and behave and live like a Christian, like Jesus would have you, there will be people, because of that, who do not like you, who perhaps slander you or badmouth you or misrepresent you or just overall hostile to you. We need to expect that as Christians. It's part of bearing the name of Christ, the one who is a decisive, polarizing, pivotal figure in human history. It's true in the first century. It's true today. We see it in our text here when Jesus is accused by these, these scribes from Jerusalem 
And we see Jesus answer them, though, in verses 23 to 27. Look with me next that Jesus answers. He called the scribes from Jerusalem to himself, and he spoke to them with, um, Mark calls them parables. They're, they're, they're compelling illustrations. And in these, in these illustrations, he's pointing out the, the lack of logic in their accusation. They've accused him of being satanically possessed and casting out demons by Satan's power. And so he responds, how can Satan cast out Satan? That's just stupid. If, the kingdom, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. This is just easily observable throughout human history. If you know like just a little bit of human history, if you've read a little bit of First and Second Kings, if you've ever read a Shakespeare play, you know that when a kingdom or dynasty are divided and opposed and at odds, it's only a matter of time until that kingdom or dynasty falls. And so in his answer, Jesus is pointing out his, the, the, the lack of logic in the scribe's accusation. It doesn't make sense. If Satan is casting out demons, he's opposing himself and weakening his kingdom and undermining and diminishing his power. And if he keeps it up, in the end, he will defeat himself. It's obviously just something he wouldn't do. It doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. But then moreover, in his answer, Jesus, he not only points out the illogical nature of the scribe's accusation, but he also reveals something significant about his redemptive mission too. He says in verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So in this parable, this illustration, Jesus is saying that Satan is this strong man, and he's got his goods, his treasure. The implication being that his his goods here are human beings, us. And Jesus has come to bind him, to overpower him, to overcome him, and tie him up, and then take his goods, to take back what is currently under the domain of Satan and his kingdom. Jesus has come to bind Satan, to tie him up, and take what belongs to him, namely people. He's come to redeem and restore people and to take us back from the grip of Satan. That's what, that's what all of these deliverances wherein Jesus casts out demons is all about. These, these exorcisms or deliverances, they're emblematic of what Jesus has come to do. He's come to rescue us from the oppression and grip of Satan and his kingdom. That's an essential part of God's kingdom program as as it's coming in Jesus Christ. This is an essential part of what Jesus has come to do. And you might say, that seems a little extreme, right? Like to say that human beings, apart from Christ, are under the domain and grip of Satan, that's a little extreme. Don't you think that's what what the scripture says about humanity apart from Jesus Christ? Look at a few texts. First, look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Here in Ephesians 2, Paul, he's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he tells them about their state and the state of all of humanity apart from conversion to Jesus Christ. And listen to what he says. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Listen, following the prince of the power of the air, following Satan, the spirit, Satan, the spirit, 
that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see what he's saying? He's saying all mankind, all humanity, apart from the redeeming work of Jesus Christ and the converting work of the Spirit of God, are following Satan. And not only that, he says that he is at work within the sons of disobedience, a label Paul gives us prior to our conversion and gives all humanity apart from Christ. We are satanically possessed and oppressed unless Christ comes to free us. Another text, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Paul writes that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So prior to conversion, we are in the domain of darkness. That's the kingdom of Satan. There's no neutrality here. There's no neutral ground. You are either in the domain of darkness or you are in the the domain of God's beloved son. You may not know it. You may not be fully conscious of it. I doubt the, the, the vast majority of people in the world are fully conscious of this reality. But apart from Christ, Satan is your master and you are under his oppressive reign. Just like the Israelites were under the oppressive reign of Pharaoh, the strong man. And they needed the stronger one to come and deliver them from his oppressive reign. So we need as humanity to be freed from the oppressive reign of Satan by one more powerful than him, namely Christ. And that's what Jesus has come to do, my friends. I wonder if you realize that part of what this illustration is implying is that Christ treasures you. He treasures you. Notice he We're the goods in this illustration. We're the goods. You're the goods. Not in the sense that you're like merely an object or like a possession, but he's speaking in terms of you're being valuable to him. In community group this last week, one sister talked about how this text, Jesus is described as kind of like Liam Neeson in Taken, right? His, his treasured one, his beloved one, the one he treasures and values has been taken. And so he's going to come as one more powerful than the one who's taken her. And he's more powerful, more skillful, more capable, more able than those who took his beloved. And so he's going to come in, kick the door down, take them out, and then take back the one he loves. What Jesus is saying here. That that's what he's come to do, all because he loves you, he values you, he treasures you. And so he's come to take you for himself, to free you from the oppression of sin and Satan and death. This is God's kingdom program, as we see it revealed here in the ministry of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God who is empowering him for this work. But then there's also a warning in this text. For those of you who would look at God's kingdom program, And at the Christ who is bringing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. For those who would look at such a marvelous thing and say, that's evil. That's demonic. That's satanic. 
Jesus alerts. That is to say, he, he warns, he sounds the alarm. He gives us a sharp and clear warning saying this. Verses 28 to 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, undoubtedly, this, this is a complicated, sometimes perplexing passage for many of us. A sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, sometimes called the unforgivable sin, sometimes called the unpardonable sin, can be perplexing. To be frank, there is very little consensus in church history about what exactly this passage and others like it mean. So may the Lord grant us clarity this morning. First, though, part of clarifying what is going on here means to, it involves saying what is not happening in this passage. Right, this passage is not addressing sins of grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit. Those are words that we find in Ephesians 4.30 and 1 Thessalonians 5.19. In Ephesians 4.30 here, Paul tells us, he exhorts us to not grieve the Holy Spirit, which is an exhortation to not cause the Holy Spirit sorrow due to our sin. And particularly, not just in our sin, but our ignoring his conviction of our sin and continuing on in it anyways. That's a dangerous place to be, to ignore the Spirit's convicting work and, and continue on in sin. That's dangerous. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here in Mark 3. And likewise, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, we're told, do not quench the Holy Spirit. And then in the very next verse, Paul explains what he means. He says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. So don't despise, really what he's saying is don't despise Gifts given by the Holy Spirit, but test everything by Scripture and hold fast to what is genuinely from the Spirit. Now, both of those texts are exhorting us to refrain from serious sins. But notice there's no mention of forgiveness being withheld if one commits them. There's no mention of someone being an unbeliever should they commit them. Instead, Paul gives these exhortations to Spirit-filled believers, people who are objectively forgiven and who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. In Mark 3 here, Jesus is speaking his words to people who are decidedly not believers in him, who are not his followers. And so if, you're, if you've ever ignored the convicting work of the Holy Spirit and gone on sinning, or if you've ever despised the gifts of the Holy Spirit and others, that's serious, it's very serious. But it's not what Jesus is referring to here as the unpardonable sin. But then some people in church history have claimed that what Jesus is warning us about here is asserting or declaring something false about the Holy Spirit being a proponent of false doctrine concerning the Holy Spirit. And yet, that seems to treat the matter in far too general terms. You might have heard people take this possession before. It just doesn't make sense. So it treats the matter in far too general terms since many Christians, perhaps all Christians actually we should say, have believed or asserted wrong things about the Holy Spirit in the past. And then over time through 
the study of Scripture and the work of Spirit in our lives, we correct and amend and change our views. I should suppose I, I, everyone has committed that sin, actually. Since before becoming a Christian, everyone possesses false beliefs concerning the Holy Spirit. So that can't be what Jesus is saying here. It's far too general to accurately describe what Jesus is warning us about here. Others in church history have claimed that the unpardonable sin is to attribute spirit-empowered miracles to Satan. And so a miracle from the Holy Spirit takes place. Someone calls it satanic. That's the unpardonable sin. And again, we would do right to call that sin, but that still doesn't do the text justice. You know, first of all, Matthew 7, 20 through 20, or 21 through 23 Jesus warned us that miracles are not necessarily evidence of true discipleship. And so, even apart from that, though, notice here that the judgment made by the scribes is not merely a judgment about the Holy Spirit and His works, but a judgment about Jesus in relation to His Spirit-empowered work. It's not a judgment about the miraculous work of the Spirit through Benny Hinn, we already named him, uh, or just Joe Schmo walking down the street. It's a judgment about the work of the Holy Spirit in the work and ministry of Jesus. And so again, that position, that definition is just too general to accurately describe what's happening in our text. Another case has been made, particularly by St. Augustine, and, and people seem to have adopted this view largely throughout church history. It's probably the most common view throughout church history. And he argued that many people blaspheme the Holy Spirit in the sense that they make false or irreverent states about, statements about him, but then later come to repentance and receive his forgiveness. And so those previous positions don't work. So that obviously can't be what Jesus is addressing here. And so Augustine says then that since all sins are forgiven when one receives the gift of the Holy Spirit in salvation, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit for which there's no forgiveness must be impenitence, that is a, a lack of repentance, an unwillingness to come to Christ and receive God's forgiveness, an unwillingness to believe in the Holy Spirit's testimony about Jesus Christ and his salvation. And then he furthermore presses it further. He says that since one can still repent as long as they live, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can be more properly defined as impenitence in resisting the Holy Spirit persisted in until the end of one's life when judgment comes. Now, this is, this is beginning to move in the right direction, I think. But there's still a problem here. And again, it's just that that sin is too general to describe what Jesus is saying here. Of course, Augustine is right when he says that anyone who, is, who persists in not repenting even till death will not receive forgiveness. That's true. But as John Calvin points out in his treatment on the subject, Augustine's view does not take into account what Jesus says in the very same event as it's recorded in Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, 32, Jesus says, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And so Calvin says, either this is said in vain or the unpardonable sin can be committed within the compass of this life. And so again, Augustine's view is just too general. And so with that, what is Jesus saying here? I know this is complicated. I know it's heady, but it, it is complicated. We, we, and it takes difficult maneuvering and, and, and thinking hard about what's taking place here. And so just stick with me. I know it's difficult, but sometimes you have to think hard when you take Scripture seriously. 
And so with that, what is Jesus saying here? What are we actually seeing happen in the text, and how do we see Jesus addressing it in his words? Well, we've seen the scribes ignore the clear testimony of the Holy Spirit regarding Jesus. We've seen them enter into a settled, hardened, final judgment about the person and work of Jesus, and that this settled, final judgment about Jesus is that he is evil or satanic in origin. That's what Jesus is warning us about here. Okay, I know it's complicated. That's a mouthful, but it's, again, it's a complicated thing. And so to put it as simply as I possibly can, here we go. The sin for which there is no forgiveness, the, the, the unpardonable sin, the sin for which there's no forgiveness in this age or in the age to come is this, rejecting the Spirit's testimony regarding Jesus to the point where you enter into a settled, hardened judgment about the person and work of Jesus which declares him to be satanic in origin. Rejecting the Spirit's testimony regarding Jesus to the point where you enter into a settled, hardened judgment about the person and work of Jesus, which declares him to be evil or satanic in origin. And so you can see from that definition that it's not so much that God would ever be unwilling to grant forgiveness should one seek it, but that a person who hardens themselves to the work of the Holy Spirit to the point where they make this kind of judgment about Jesus, well, that kind of person won't ever seek Christ's forgiveness, will they? Like Pharaoh, they've, they've hardened their hearts, and they've done so to the point where repentance is impossible for them. We see the same thing described in Hebrews 6. Four through eight, people's hearts being hardened to the work of the Holy Spirit to the point where repentance is impossible. And so they'll never have the forgiveness that only the repentant receive. And that's either what we're seeing the scribes doing here, or at least they're getting dangerously close to doing it. They're at least close to crossing the line, a line which after you cross it seems there is no return. And so Jesus is alerting them. He's warning them about this. It's a warning that we should heed. Now applying this, first I want, to speak, I want to speak to those of you who are still on the fence about Jesus. There's a real warning for you here. There's a real, Jesus is alerting you to the danger, a danger that you could be in. If you are increasing in knowledge about Jesus... And yet simultaneously, increasingly becoming hardened to the truth concerning him, if you continually hear the Holy Spirit's testimony concerning Jesus and the word of God and continually hardening your heart toward him, you may very well get to the point where you become so settled in your unbelief and your hardness of heart that it is impossible for you to repent. And if it is impossible for you to repent, it is impossible for you to receive forgiveness in this age or in the age to come. And so, friend, if you are still on the fence about Jesus, be warned, there is danger for you to be aware of. And so if I may be so bold as to admonish you today, get off the fence Go all in on Jesus. Believe that he is who he said he is and bank your life on that reality. Trust in him. Entrust yourself to him. Be baptized. Follow him all the days of your life. He came to free you from bondage to sin and Satan. He came to forgive every sin and every blasphemy that we've committed so long as we repent and receive his forgiveness. 
That's what he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died on the cross, taking upon himself the penalty for every sin or blasphemy that we have committed, and he took it all to the grave, a grave from which he rose three days later. Trust in him and be saved. I'll be around after service. I'd love to talk with you. Please don't wait. Please don't hesitate. Today is the day of salvation. But then not just those of you who are still on the fence. I also want to address those of you who are worried. Those of you, you're you're worried, you're concerned that you might have committed this, this unpardonable sin. For those worried that they've committed the, the unpardonable sin, you, you may or may not know this, but this is one of those passages that pastors get asked about a lot, and probably oftentimes simply because Christians just find it enigmatic, it's, it's mysterious, it's, it's strange to us, and so we're naturally curious to know what it means, how it applies to us. But sometimes pastors get asked about this passage and this particular sin because there are Christians who are tortured in their souls, wondering if they are guilty of this sin or not. There are those of us, even in this church, who have particularly tender consciences and who are therefore particularly sensitive to any warning passages, including this one. And so it looms large in the minds of some and weighs heavily on their souls. And if that's you this morning, friend, take heart, take courage. If you are at all concerned with whether or not you've committed the sin, that is a very good sign that you are not committing it. Because those who have are settled in their hard-hearted rejection of Jesus and have become so settled in their judgments about him and declaring him to be evil. And so if you're at all concerned about sinning against Jesus and against the Holy Spirit, you are not settled in a hard-hearted rejection of him and are thus not committing this sin. And of course, it's not just those of you who are worried about yourselves. There are those of you who are worried about your loved ones. For those worried that loved ones have committed this unpardonable sin, perhaps you have a son or daughter, brother, sister, father, mother, friend, cousin, aunt, uncle, whomever, someone that you you love and you're worried about the state of their soul and you want so badly for them to know the Lord Jesus and have the the freedom of knowing him and being redeemed and having the, 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 the freedom of forgiveness in him. You want them to have that, and yet they seem so hard-hearted, so opposed, so, so settled in their rejection of Jesus and the testimony of the Spirit concerning him. And you wonder, have they committed this unpardonable sin? Is it too late for them to receive forgiveness in this age? Friends, maybe they have, maybe they haven't. You, you, you don't know, and in all likelihood, you, you can't know for certain on this side of glory. And so if I can encourage you, don't stop praying for them, don't stop serving them, don't stop reaching out, don't stop loving them, don't stop pressing in, and don't be pushy. But be persistent. You don't know what God may do in the life of another through your faithfulness and patient endurance. Friends, whether, you've, you've, whether you're concerned for yourself or for someone else, I beg you, don't let verses 27 and 28, don't let verse 28 be blurred by what verses 29 and 30 say. There is a real warning here. A warning that we should heed. Jesus alerts us to us. He he wants to warn us here. 
But notice that he also gives us the gift of assurance here in verse 28 with words that are remarkable. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. All sins and whatever blasphemies. That's pretty comprehensive. You may be here this morning and you're overwhelmingly concerned that you have outsinned the grace of God because you've hardened yourself to the convicting work of the Spirit too many times. Jesus says to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. You may be here this morning and look back over the course of your life and see heinous, horrendous sins. Jesus says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. You may look back and see sins of adultery, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. You may look back and see sins of murder, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. You may look back and see sins of blasphemy. All sins will be forgiven. You may look back over the course of your life. You may look back over the course of this last week and see sins of pornography and lust and fornication. All sins will be forgiven. You may look back and remember horrid things that you've said to the people that you're supposed to love most Jesus says to you, all sins will be forgiven. You may look back and be reminded of sins that make you wince with embarrassment, make your face red hot with shame. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. You may look back and be appalled at all the ways you've dishonored and disobeyed the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus says to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Because the Christ and his cross are sufficient for these things. If we will repent and trust in him, all sins will be forgiven. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the warnings and assurances of Jesus here. Would you help us to hear them and heed them? Would you help us to, to see the warnings and flee sin and run into the arms of Jesus and collapse into him? And to there have our hearts resting in the assurance that all sins are forgiven the children of man. Help us to rest in him this morning as we come to the table remembering his broken body and his shed blood. But also let us not take him, help us to not take him lightly as well. Help us to look to him, to love him, to trust him, to revere him as our Lord and Master in all things. In his name we pray. Amen.